0: Alive and kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show, kicking at newstalk.com, or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Dietician Sarah Keogh will be joining us to talk us through some of the headlines of a recent survey asking Irish people what they are eating, and you might be surprised by what they said. Andy Dunn joined us recently to talk about viewing exercise as medicine, and he'll be talking about exercise, particularly after breast cancer and Michael Kelly of Grow It Yourself on his RTE series, Food Matters. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, it's been a good week. I have been continuing to declutter my life and make changes, some easier than others, but I have to say it feels good. You know, like when you decide you're going to clear out your wardrobe or your room and the process can be arduous and you regret it when you're halfway through. But that night when everything is put away and the bags have been brought to the charity shop... You sleep better and can get a much better look at what you already have. So I have moved on this week from a long-standing gig that I've been more than emotionally attached to, but it was getting harder to juggle everything, so something had to give. And along with that, I've been making the most of the sunny days and brighter evenings and getting out and about. It took a while, I think, for me to get out of the winter hibernation feeling, but I really felt this week, look, I'm getting there. And speaking of getting out relationships in our lives do play a huge part to our health and wellness because, as you know, they can bring you great joy, but they can also add some stress and worry. And sometimes you just need to tend to them. And this was on my list for this year to really focus on strengthening my relationship with my kids, with my husband and with my friends, because we can get so caught up in the day to day that sometimes the opportunities to celebrate these people can slip by. So I wanted to mention this week, date night. Now, I am with Jonathan for 18 years this year and we finally, in the last couple of months, seem to have got the hang of date night. Now, sure, we've been on a date before and we would often head out with friends or for dinner or whatever, but with the kids' schedules over the years, it has slipped down the priority list And we've brought it back. What we do is we rotate the weeks as to who organises it. It doesn't have to cost money. It can be a walk. It can be watching something on Netflix. Although we have discovered leaving the house is actually an essential part of the process. And it has made a massive difference. We've had chats we wouldn't have had. I've gone on walks and looked at sunsets that I would have missed. And it has definitely brought joy to the mundane. So that's my recommend this week. So do let me know if you take it on. And If there isn't someone like that in your life, then think this week is there a friend or a family member that you could make the effort to get together with? Quite often we talk ourselves out of these things. We're too tired, not bothered. Sure, they won't want to. But I have found, while I am a champion of rest and recharge, sometimes to make time for the people who make up our lives can really fill up your cup. Do email me and let me know. Alive and kicking at newstalk.com. Now, recent research on behalf of the National Dairy Council shows the factors considered by Irish consumers when choosing a sustainable, healthy diet. As food prices continue to soar, it's not surprising that affordability was top of mind, closely followed by nutrition. To discuss the findings, I'm joined by dietitian Sarah Keogh. Sarah, you're very welcome. Thank you. And I suppose people were being asked about the food on their plate, but it is quite positive, isn't it, to hear about nutrition, that people are are very conscious about what they're putting on their place. And that's true.
1: And I mean, I think the study reflects what we see in other studies in terms of what people look for when they go kind of shopping or looking for food, and affordability is always number one, and it, I think it's never it's never fallen off that perch, and we can understand why. but nutrition has definitely been in there for a long time, and people are thinking about their nutrition when they eat, and not everybody, but it's in there. And I think what's interesting in this study as well is looking at locally produced foods is is always top of the agenda as well for people. They're kind of more thinking about you know travel miles and you know what am I eating, and can I get what's what's near to me as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that can become a kind of a, a stress in our lives, but it can mm. also be a really positive thing. I often think to myself, God, I wish I grew up in my mum's generation where they didn't think about recycling or sustainability or, you know, read the back of packets before they mm. gave anything to kids. I mean, we regularly had spaghetti hoops on toast and nobody worried <laughs> about it. And not that I'm suggesting that they should, but we are living in different times. We're way more conscious. And I think we we all still grew up. And this is the thing I keep coming
1: back to. I think, you know, as a dietitian, you know, obviously I'm really well aware about nutrition, but I'm also aware of the fact that perfection isn't required and that you can actually just take a break, um, you know. And I agree with you. I think there is that pressure to look at labels. I think the 70s came in with a lot of processed foods and kind of hard-pressed mums were like, thank God, I don't actually have to cook everything. And, you know, I've got spaghetti hoops to give my kids. And it's fine. You know, I think we can overthink it quite a bit when it comes to nutrition. Sometimes you can just relax.
0: Yeah, well, give us some of the top line um, figures then from the survey. Well, as we said, the top three
1: were affordability, nutrition and locally produced foods in terms of what people were thinking about when they were um, kind of, thinking about it, sort of a sustainable, healthy diet. But what was really good, and I thought it was nice, was that 84% of people said they had taken steps to try and be more sustainable with what they're eating. And I think when we look at where we are from a climate point of view, it's important that we are thinking in that way and taking those steps. But what I thought was interesting was that, um, you know, particularly when we look at plant-based diet and plant-based eating, that about half of people took that to mean you had to be on either a vegan diet, a fully plant-based diet, or vegetarian. The idea that you can have a plant-based diet, but still includes things like some meat or fish, or dairy as well. Most people just didn't really get that, and we do see that as a barrier um to people actually engaging with kind of increasing their plant-based foods, which is what we do want to do.
0: It's just moving so fast, isn't it? I mean, I remember being with family in England. I'm I say it's about five years ago, and one of the girls at the table was vegan, and I mean, they just didn't even know what to do with her. What they what they brought her was. God bless her, I'm sure. She was absolutely starving. Whereas now, you walk in everywhere. There are vegan offerings on menus. There are different milks available. I mean, Mm -hmm. the choice of milk would bamboozle you when you go (laughs) in for a coffee. And that's just in in five short years. So it did seem to go from vegan becoming more centre stage to plant-based. And and, and I can understand where that confusion came from.
1: And it is. And I think certainly when people talk about vegan years ago, like... I suppose people just didn't have concepts even of diets in that sense, other than sort of a weight loss diet, the idea of eating in a different way. And, you know, we see even people struggle with things like gluten-free diets for celiacs, all of that. Um, But it has definitely changed and the education is definitely improving around that for people. And I think as well as that, a lot of food manufacturers sort of saw this as a sort of a bit of a marketing opportunity as well. But that does always then lead to, as you said, more products on shelves, more awareness. So it's definitely, and I hesitate to say easier because I know friends of mine who are on a fully plant-based diet would maybe disagree a little bit, but it is a little easier if that was something that you wanted to do compared to as you said there you know 10, 15, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah so plant-based doesn't mean no animal products at all. So
1: the idea is that we know that from a health point of view being very plant-based and what plant-based means is that most of what you're eating is coming from plants so that can be your whole grains you know it's you know things like pasta rice those kind of foods they would be grains and then you're looking at things like nuts and seeds and then we're looking at the fruit and vegetables and all of those things no surprise to anybody really good for a healthy diet you know we've got our vitamin c our fiber all of that coming in nuts and seeds are fantastic for things like magnesium and it's not the idea that you need to or that you should cut out meat or dairy or any of those foods but if people wanted to balance their diet a little bit. And as well as that, you know, we talk about looking at sort of treat foods or what I sometimes call sometimes foods. So those kind of, you know, your nice crisps and your chocolate and they're all very tasty and lovely. But if we're took looking nearly from a sustainable point of view, those foods provide very little in terms of very good nutrition. And they are still sort of generating sort of, if we look at carbon dioxide and so on, that maybe limiting those foods that are less nutritious for us can have a big impact as well. Um, and that way, if people want to include their meat, their fish, their dairy and so on, that it's it's within what they're doing. Do you need to get
0: help when you're making a dietary change? It depends on how extreme you're going to be.
1: Um, one of the things, and I you know, I do a lot of workplace wellness, and it's funny when I talk about this, is that the food pyramid is a plant-based healthy eating plan. And everyone kind of laughs. And then you actually look at it, because what I find with, say, the food pyramid, and people love to hate it. You know, you mentioned the food pyramid, people nearly groan. But it's actually, if you look at the bottom shelf, all fruit and veg, the next shelf is grains, which again are plant food. And, you know, then you're looking at smaller servings of meat than most people think. If, if you actually took sort of the advice in the food pyramid in terms of protein foods like meat and so on, it's a lot smaller than people expect and they don't think about that then as part of that whole healthy eating. So if people are going to make changes, if they're making small changes in the sense of, you know, if they're bringing in a little bit more fruit and veg, they want to add a few seeds into their breakfast, things like that, you know, you can probably carry on. If you're going to make a very extreme change, it is good to get nutrition advice and I think we all know in this day and age, everywhere you turn, there's some self-appointed expert in terms of nutrition. So, you know, if you wanted to, you can definitely go and see a registered dietitian who can give you kind of very, very reliable advice about that and just get that support. But I find sometimes when people go, say, fully um, plant-based, they miss some key nutrients without realising. So a lot of people don't realise that dairy is a major source of iodine in the Irish diet. And once you take that out, you really have to be aware of looking for iodine in other places. And I find most people, that one just passes them by. And I also find, just even in my own clinics, when people... um, particularly cut out dairy for whatever reason very difficult to get the calcium now it can be done but I rarely meet anyone who's hitting those targets for it so I think there's an education piece there as well in terms of making sure that whatever changes you make in your diet are actually going to be of good benefit to you and three years down the line you're not thinking well I have to give this up because I'm not well well actually sometimes a little adjustment can do the trick for you
0: and just be careful of not following fads and I'm not yes, suggesting yeah. that you know vegan is a fad or even plant based is a fad but I myself I've spoken Opening on the show about it was completely overwhelmed and was throwing yeah. gluten-free in, thinking mm. it was healthier, was throwing in paleo with no understanding as to what that truly meant from yeah. a nutritional point of view. We are held captive by so much messaging and so much marketing.
1: And I think it gets so confusing. And I I was laughing at it was at a talk recently, like, but where do you go for advice? And I said, Well, you know, if you needed advice on a, a law, you go to a lawyer. If you need advice on nutrition, go and see a dietitian. And it's the the blank faces people like never actually would have thought of doing that and for the sake of you know it's not that expensive in terms of what you'll save for healthy eating later on and all the rest Um, and I think there is that huge confusion we tend to jump onto Instagram and we look at you know what's going on there or we jump online and we see and you know As someone said to me years ago, you know, Google will give you the right answer, but it also gives you the wrong answer. And, you know, how can you tell the difference with that? So I think looking at reliable advice is going to be important. And whatever way you choose to eat, like there's so many different ways that you can eat to be healthy. There is no one way. And, you know, I would lecture with um, dietetic students. And one of the things that we were saying is, it doesn't matter how the person wants to eat. Your job as a dietitian is to make sure it's nutritionally balanced. You don't bring your own views, opinions, whatever it is with it. It's as long as they're getting all of their nutrients. It doesn't matter whether they like to have their steak or they prefer to be fully plant-based. You know, it's just about balancing that nutrition and that's what's fundamentally important.
0: Yeah, and how we eat, not just mm. what we eat is so yes. important, isn't it? I mean, we had um, a nutritionist here um, in studio recently and she was saying a woman had came to her who said, I definitely think I'm gluten intolerant mm. and, and dairy intolerant yeah. and when they really down, she didn't sit down for any of her meals. She ate them all on the go. And I think we really need to make sure that we're sitting down, that we're taking time and that we're enjoying our food and and, and enjoying it with friends and family.
1: Well, that's it. And when I'm doing sessions on sort of gut health into, into workplaces like that, one of the things that we, we talk about with the gut health is you have to sit down, you have to eat slowly, you have to chew your food or the famous one, stop stuffing your stomach full when you eat. Like it's such an Irish thing as you've got to clear the plate but actually you're packing your stomach full and I think people just never even think about that. They don't think, you know, I'd often say, you know, your stomach doesn't have any teeth. You have to do the work up in your mouth and get your food down to a paste and so having worked and I work a huge amount in gut health, like, there's so many things you would do before you start on this idea that we're food intolerant. It's the nearly the last place you look because, you know, fibre is a huge issue. And that's what's gorgeous about looking at improving the plant-based side of things is getting the fibre up. But as you said, how you eat makes a huge difference. Um, so there's so many other factors in there. People are very quick to jump on the, oh, I must be gluten intolerant or I must have lactose intolerance or I must go and cut out a million foods. Actually don't. There's usually lots of other things you can do first. Where can people find you? I am on Instagram at Sarah Kyo and my website is eatwell.ie.
0: Sarah Kyo, thank you so much for coming on. Alive and kicking. On News Talk. Now, my next guest, Andrew Dunn, is clinical exercise specialist, chartered physiotherapist and founder of Personal Health Medical Exercise Clinic in Dublin. He was on the show a while back to talk about viewing exercise as a form of medicine and that after illness, we should be prescribed a specific exercise plan. Well, I've invited him back to talk through some common conditions and the recommended exercise. And today we are looking at breast cancer. Andy, you're very welcome. Thanks
2: very much, Claire.
0: And before we get into that, I think it's important that we say from the start that the prescription will be individual depending on people's age illness, fitness level. That's very much part of your message, isn't it?
2: Yeah it's well it's the same as um, personalized medicine. oncology treatment plans in in twenty years ago were less personalized. the chemotherapy drug, the radiation, the approach of surgery was Uh, a little less individual and personalised but with advances in research the oncology management has become very evolved and in that period of time so too has the exercise medicine. So there is no, I mean there are pillars that we use but there is no one size fits all for sure.
0: So when you came on the show we were talking about how important exercise is in recovery and maintenance of health and we're honing in on breast cancer this week because that was something that you spoke about quite a lot, that exercise in the recovery of breast cancer can have a, a, a massive impact.
2: Yeah, so like a, a huge, a huge impact. It's, it's, um, I think one of the key issues is, is post-diagnosis, post-treatment, if, if there's been a mastectomy or a double mastectomy, if there's chemotherapy, radiation, maybe immune therapy, what typically happens in, in terms of the medical management is it's high-end, it becomes very personalised, but it's it's crisis management at that stage. And in terms of managing the aftercare, it becomes less um, specific. So we would, and we know, I know many uh, consultants and breast surgeons and, and oncology teams, you might get an example where they've done their absolute best with the breast cancer patient but for the interest of the patient they might say look in in terms of hygiene and scar management and and reducing risk of infection post-surgery don't lift anything heavier than a kettle you know throw away remarks that are non-specific but in in absolutely meant to help but that becomes a little hardwired if somebody's vulnerable and they're post-surgery and they're fatigued and they're going through chemo and radiation sometimes those thought processes become unhelpful to the patient because, ideally, they need to maintain lean muscle mass. They need to maintain heart health, lung health, um, bone mineral density. They need exercise will regulate their hormonal response. So, across a multitude of different specific areas, the exercise program is going to enhance the recovery and significantly. So, it it is um it is an area that. In terms of just across medicine, it's it's helpful. The specifics in relation to breast cancer are hugely important around maintenance of your heart and lung health and particularly maintenance of your lean muscle mass and bone mineral density because they become impacted very quickly in the cancer treatment plan.
0: And I can feel people and I want to represent them going, oh, for God's sake, leave me alone. I've just been through breast cancer. Be you a man or a woman you've had more going on in your life you're if if you're post surgery and treatment and all that you're trying to get back to your work life your family life your normal mm. life your hair could be growing back you've yeah. you've had this major body change and now you're telling me to get into the gym like just mm. back off yeah we have to be really careful with the messaging here don't we i mean it can be A very positive thing, I interviewed a GP recently down in Waterford who used to prescribe free entry into this local garden that people could just go. He'd say, go, take some time for yourself. Mm. And it was a positive thing. We need to stop looking at exercise as this big, hard mountain that needs to be climbed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is like uh, I've heard a number of patients over the years describe it. It's, It's akin to asking someone with a really bad hangover. To go to the gym and not, not to, to lighten the the, the tone and the, the severity of you know dealing with a, 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 something that's as impactful as cancer, but the side effects being a kind of a brain fog and kind of a fatigue that I've never experienced before, and somebody's asking me to go and do more work as a result, but in truth. If we can do it in, in a caring way, in a gentle way with guidance, as opposed to, you know, talking at people that they need to do exercise. When we speak with patients and say, you know, you're going to reduce the risk of recurrence of breast cancer by 30% if you can maintain your current aerobic fitness levels. That changes the messaging and people start to say, well, that's significant. You're going to reduce the impact of brain fog of side effects of chemo and radiation such as cardiotoxicity, which is, um, I suppose, reduced function in the heart, um, lung fibrosis, which is um, changes in lung tissue as a result of radiation treatment. You can enhance the accuracy and the delivery of the chemo and radiation drugs through exercise. So it's not a separate entity. It's a It's a key component part of the treatment plan and where the evidence base says this for 20, 30 years now, there's a translation gap into practice and I think in 15, 20 years time there are already examples of multiple gyms across Western Australia that are in the chemotherapy and radiation treatment centres where people do their exercise programme immediately prior or immediately post-treatment because of the beneficial effects to the treatment itself. So it's quite profoundly impactful. Um, Like you said at the very outset, Claire, people are at different levels and people arrive at a breast cancer diagnosis with all kinds of different levels of physical activity history. So you can't just impose an exercise treatment plan on someone who wasn't fit prior to a breast cancer diagnosis, but we can certainly guide them on the road to getting more fit because it reduces the impact of the treatment plan.
0: And does it have to be a specialised centre like your own? As you say, we're behind Australia in that. Mm. Can people who are recovering from breast cancer who get to a point, who hear what you're saying, who you think, OK, can they just rock up to their gym and start taking part in, in hit classes and, and weight sessions?
2: Again, it's it's dependent on the Specifics of, of the cancer diagnosis, the type of treatment, the type of surgery. Um, there are, you know, an example might be a, a Dieppe reconstruction surgery it has a wide incision right across from pelvis to pelvis, and six weeks of very gentle, you know, walking, for example, is appropriate, but nothing more. But that's that will be individual to the cancer treatment and the surgery and the approach. So it's hard to give generic advice and say, absolutely, you can go to the gym. That, that person can't and uh, not for a few weeks. So, but there are pillars of, of exercise oncology and exercise medicine that we can help with. We can say there is strength training is one, aerobic training is two, and um, mobility or flexibility is number three. And then the last one is called neuromotor, which is an umbrella term for agility, coordination and balance. If you were, regardless of your type of surgery, type of breast cancer and physical activity history, if you pay attention to those four pillars in some form or other, you're doing far better than when you avoid them. So if that's a strength training by going up and down the stairs more, that can similarly be an aerobic type of approach um, if you're going for walks, if you're out in nature, for sure they have they have huge impacts in terms of starting the journey. mobility and flexibility can be mobility around the scar sites, flexibility, maintaining that in the shoulder joint after surgery um, and most people are given very early stage rehabilitation on discharge from hospital anyway. I think the challenge is it doesn't tend to progress after that but um there are there is generic advice. Like that, I think people need to stick to those pillars, strength, aerobic conditioning, mobility or flexibility, and that last term neuromotor. Even to have some kind of headings around it and understand that as a breast cancer patient, they're appropriate. And you can then find more, there's lots of information freely available online. I suppose the clinical setting provides a bit more reassurance and and that's where um, exercise oncology can, can have a real impact.
0: And it's important to start small, isn't it? We do tend to take exercise on sort of hell for leather and, mm. you know, go to a, a class or, you know, start pounding the pavements. We forget to really, really build it up slowly because you are going to exhaust yourself. Mm. You are going to see it as something that felt very negative and be less likely to continue it.
2: Yeah, I heard a really interesting analogy about um, exercise recently. We We have a an on-off relationship, the button switches on for people and it tends to switch off. They get injured, they do too much, life events happen, they lose that consistency or motivation. But the analogy I heard was to equate exercise to a dimmer switch. It's never switched on or off, you just change the dimmer intensity. Some weeks you're not you're fatigued, some weeks you've work problems, you've life problems, you've anything. And you cannot maintain consistency, but you don't switch it off and you try and do something in that given week. And I thought that was a nice analogy because from an an exercise medicine point of view, we would deal with so many people with not only the the barriers that we all face in life, but they're dealing with the medical challenges of medical management, medication, surgery, ongoing treatment, which are additional hurdles. So we have to have um, some sense of... Um awareness they're they're vulnerable, their motivation levels change, their confidence levels change, but nonetheless, I don't think we should apologize and say okay we're we're going to underdose and under prescribe exercise because its impacts are too powerful,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm certainly convinced hearing you, but I just feel that there's going to be people outside Dublin you know who can't necessarily make it to your to your, your clinic I, who I, aren't as supported up and down the country. Where do people start to look for support in this.
2: Um I think yeah, and absolutely I uh, you know, I'm I'm conscious there are not there's not widespread services available nationwide, but um there are resources online freely available. The American College of Sports Medicine publishes all its information around breast cancer and exercise. So it's freely available through their website, the ACSM. They would be considered the 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 world leaders and the authority um, on advising breast cancer patients how to exercise, and their information is freely available and published. The problem is, it's in Amer- the American College of Sports Medicine tends to publish it for peer review, and the language used is very clinical. So you tend to need some somebody to help decipher that a little, or to simplify the language. And there are many people. I, I mean, I'm. Beth Hoag, I know over in in the US has a a really strong online following there. She's freely available to give advice on YouTube and provided people are prepared to search. And I often find people with a breast cancer diagnosis are very keen to, to go deep and research how they can help themselves in the absence of localised help being available. There are good resources online.
0: Yeah, and you can also add this one to that list personalhealth.ie. Andrew Dunn, clinical exercise specialist, chartered physiotherapist, and founder of Personal Health Medical Exercise Clinic. Thank you very much for coming on.
2: Thanks, Claire. A pleasure. Alive and
0: kicking. On News Talk. Now, my next guest, Michael Kelly, is founder and CEO of GIY, Grow It Yourself, a social enterprise that aims to help 100 million people to grow some of their own food for a healthier, more sustainable world by 2030. Michael has also been presenting an RT series for the last few weeks called Food Matters, and he joins me in studio now. Michael, you're very welcome. How are you,
3: Claire?
0: I'm very good. Um, You did feature on the show previously. Yes. I came to see you at the launch of your schools initiative with Super Value at yeah, in Core in Dublin. That's right. So that must be bringing you a little bit further to that target. How close are you by
3: twenty <laughs> thirty? Well, yeah. Well, it's 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 one of those things that um, I can't make up my mind whether it's a motivating target or just ridiculous. You know, it's it's so vast a number. But um, yeah, like fifty thousand kids are taking part in Let's Grow this year. Um, our partnership with Supervalues, so it's it's an amazing thing. Um And obviously getting kids growing their own food is a hugely important part of the work. Um But to, to get to 100 million, like we have to go way beyond what we're doing at the moment and, and run campaigns and programmes in other countries. And obviously the media and TV work then is a huge part of that as well.
0: And you might never know how many people you affect, will you? How many people will see a post online or find Food Matters and think, okay, go on, I will, I'll give it a go or read one of your books.
3: Yeah, exactly. I think I think you have to be a little bit sort of chilled out about that. Like, obviously, you have to try and measure the impact you're having. um, But like, for example, we the original series we did with with RT called Grow, Cook, Eat, is on Amazon Prime around the world now and has been for a couple of years and we have no idea how many people are are watching that because like the streaming sort of services are, are very reticent to give you any numbers. Um, we do get lots of sort of random Americans showing up at Grow HQ, have seen it on Amazon and want to see the place and that kind of stuff so there's definitely a few people watching but we don't know is it like a million or ten million or whatever but... So it's let's just, just say you're you're
0: on your way to the target. Yeah, exactly. That's an easier way <laughs> exactly. to look at it. And earlier on in the show, I was joined by dietitian Sarah Keogh, and she was talking about a survey survey by the National Dairy Council. And when people were asked about what's important in the food they eat, sustainability is what came up time and time again. So, since you started. Giy back in two thousand and eight. Have you seen that appetite grow and that interest grow?
3: Yeah, I th- I think like the the motivation for people to get involved in in growing their own food has kind of changed over time. Like I, I think when we started, it was a, it was in two thousand and eight. It was a cost of living problem back then, and and um, you know the the economy had tanked and all of that. It's there's probably a bit of that now again as well. Um, but I think I think sustainability over the last three or four years has been a huge part of it. I think people want to want to sort of take action, and and like climate change and and these kind of issues are like they're they're incredibly complex to the point of I think we can feel demotivated by them almost because they're so vast. It's like you know what what little change I make will that make a difference at all um so i think i think growing your own food is a really positive piece of climate action like it's it's participatory you get stuck in um and people develop this what what we call food empathy um it's kind of like a just a different relationship with food and and even if they're only growing maybe 5% of the food they eat it it tends to change the other 95% because of that you know slightly better connection with food understanding of how food grows um, and so it leads to these other pro-environmental behaviors that is, is exactly the themes we wanted to explore in in food matters so eating more plants and wasting less food and supporting local food producers and so on that they're all the sort of behaviors that food growers tend to adapt quite naturally regardless of how um, much or how little food they're growing so that's where the real impact is I think it's it's a kind of a it's a rabbit hole that you go down, I think, and nothing about your relationship with food is ever the same again afterwards, I think.
0: And did you have that conflict of will this have a switch-off factor in people? Will they get scared about the climate crisis and just think, I can't watch that? When you were sitting down with the producers, is that was that part of the conversation?
3: Yeah, very much so. And, and I think um, we wanted it to be a really positive show, and I think it is. Um, it is. It's kind of it certainly doesn't shy away from from the fact that it's like the food system is uh, one of or, or, or if not the biggest contributor to the climate crisis. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the, like as we say in the intro every week, a lot of the solutions are actually happening already. They're just not happening at a big enough scale. So I think we saw our role as being to shine a light on those people and projects that are doing things really well. And... Um, let people make up their own mind. the other The other thing I think is that a lot of these issues get sort of uh, mixed up in the kind of almost like the culture wars of of around food. So, you know, we've an episode about eating more plants, which is we deliberately called it eating more plants and not, you know, don't eat meat. um And we wanted to show people that it's it's sort of it's a spectrum that you can you can go on. You know, it doesn't have to be a binary choice. And I think often, the, the debate and the narrative around it is that binary like it's the vegan versus the farmer it's urban versus rural and i think that's ultimately not a very helpful sort of way to frame it so in our episode about eating more plants we wanted it to be you know inclusive we, we started off breaking bread together like we had a meal and grow hq we had a, a young climate activist and a beef farmer and a dietitian coming together and instead of saying what's your view from you know on the extremes we said to them what can we agree on and we got them to sort of think about what, what is there any consensus at all and actually it was kind of surprising that there was they they all agreed including the beef farmer that we need to eat more plants um and so i think that's that's the point i think you can present this information to people and then let them make up their own mind about how far they want to take it but any move you can make along that spectrum towards eating more plants in your diet, all of the science tells us it's good for for your health and good for the health of the planet.
0: And people will have been feeling it recently. I know we obviously have the the, the cost of living crisis and that's affecting the decisions people are making about what they're putting on their table. But we've also had some shortages. We've had shortages of tomatoes, cucumbers, and, and, and people will, will see that. And it does make us start to think, is this the future? Is this the way things are going to go? And and you did cover that that even though this is going on, we have some of our our biggest providers here in Ireland having to close.
3: Yeah, it was really interesting that I think I think it was sort of March timeframe, wasn't it? Like that those shortages crept in, and um, you know it highlighted, I suppose, um, the vagaries of climate change, and and the unpredictable unpredictability of climate change means you know where we import most of our veg from in the winters um Holland and Spain they've had you know um incredible weather conditions and and so that supply chain has become disrupted um and it was interesting to me that that was the focus rather than thinking about why are we eating tomatoes in in march you know um because they're not in season in in Ireland and so, you know, we've another episode about that like following the seasons which I would always argue is it's it's the best way to eat. Um not not just from a sort of a um a planetary perspective, but you also get to eat food that's at its most delicious, you know. And I think like you spoke to a dietitian. I I think like we 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 we've, we've sort of locked into a mono diet now where we're sort of we're we're thinking this diet is healthy and I'm going to eat that all year round, whereas actually you know, there's a much more interesting way to eat, which is to follow the seasons through the year and and eat different things at different times of the year. So, for example, at this time of the year, a lot of spring greens coming into, you know, in, are in the fields around us. In the summer, it's the hydrating crops like like tomatoes and cucumbers that we need to hydrate our bodies, um, you know, berries and and vitamin C laden fruits in the autumn. And then in the winter the starchy root crops, things that grow underneath the ground that warm us and, and and are earthy and and grounding, you know. So I think I think following that, you know, the wisdom of the seasons through the year is a much more um it's a much more interesting way to eat. And I think when you're eating food that's really seasonal and really fresh, you're also eating food that's at its most delicious, you know? So I think it's I think it's a different way to think about it and, and um Maybe these kind of shortages should be highlighting that fact rather than, uh, as well as the sort of vagaries of of climate change and the impact that has on the food system.
0: Because we do become like zombies almost going into the supermarket. I know I've done it myself. You're just throwing in the same things and then making the same dinners week on week out. It takes a lot of joy out of the food. I was only talking with one of the guests Recently, but off air about an interview I did on this show with Rory O'Connell. For, he He's down in yeah. and and a prolific food writer and presenter. And he was talking about waiting for that summer raspberry yeah. and strawberry. And it was almost biblical the way he was talking about it and to taste the sweetness. Whereas we are just putting them into our trolley and tasting yeah. them watery. And they've traveled so far and we don't really know about that journey. So even if we're not growing our own veg and I know that's obviously your your banner. Should we be looking at the labels of where stuff is from coming from? I would often have a look and I try and avoid plastic and pick up the loose veg, but if it says Egypt or Ireland, I mean I'm putting the Irish one in for sure. Yeah,
3: yeah exactly and 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 seeking out Irish produce so it's it's like good for Irish horticulture and Irish jobs and like that's a whole Whole other days, days work um, about how difficult the Irish veg growers are finding at the moment. But seeking out Irish veg is also it's a, it's a guarantee that it's in season, pretty much. I mean, you can the you know veg growers can store things for a long time, and so they're they're maybe not a hundred percent fresh all the time. But it's it's a pretty good guarantee that you are eating something that's in season, and and it will taste completely different. So the example I always use is is um, is is sweet corn which when you grow sweet corn there's always this i i've been hearing this for years that you should run from the veg patch to the kitchen to get it into a pot of water because literally as soon as you pick it off the plant it's it's changing like chemically inside it the the sugars which is what makes it sweet and delicious are starting to turn into starch like literally as as soon as you pick it off the plant and and all all vegetables and fruit all food as soon as you pick it from the ground or off a plant it's are, are starting a journey towards rotting and decay. Like that's 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 what it is. So the sooner you can eat it, the more nutritious and more delicious it, it's going to be. And so if you're eating food that's in season, you're accessing food that's at its freshest. And I completely agree with you about the tomatoes. Like I, this morning, hotel I was staying in, I had a grilled tomato with my breakfast and it tasted of absolutely nothing. It was watery. It was just... so So like to me... Is that a nutritious tomato? Like, does it have you know? Does it boast all of the health benefits that we we hear about with tomatoes? I doubt it. Um, and yet, when I stand in the polytunnel at home in the summer, in July or August, and I take a tomato off the plant and eat it, like like Rory said, it's it's an explosion of of taste, you know, because it's it's at its most nutritionally nutritionally replete at that moment. And so, eating seasonally and following the seasons is a way to 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 get a sense of that like growing your own food as you get it's even better but absolutely seek out Irish veg seek out in season veg and you're going to get food that's at its most nutritious and delicious
0: I don't know if you'll know the answer to this question but I often wonder are there separate planes that are coming in with food produce or are there planes coming in with other like people or other things that the veg come in anyway. I often wonder about the carbon footprint yeah. of a packet of green beans. Um, for me to not buy them, does it make an impact? Are they coming on planes anyway? And, and I don't know whether you know that. Are there specific um, flight paths for
3: my, food? Yeah, my sense would be... And, and i'm i'm not an expert in this space claire but like i my sense would be it's mainly shipping like i don't think it's 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 as many flights um i think most of the food is is in transit on ships around the world that's that's by and large what's happening um but the carbon footprint is considerable now again there's a whole the complexity of this um when you get into even comparing the carbon footprint of that veg compared to meat for example um re- even reared locally in ireland um, it's still, it's still got a, a much smaller carbon footprint with imported veg than, than meat. So, I, like, I think we have to, we have to consider all of this in the round. Like, eating more plants is still, according to Project Drawdown and others, it's still the number one thing you can do to reduce your carbon footprint, even if the veg are imported. But um, if you can eat, if you can eat local and seasonal veg, it's even better again because it doesn't have those food miles. You know.
0: What about food waste then? That's something you're going to be looking at um in an upcoming episode. Yeah. How can we make it an impact there?
3: Um yeah, well like, like it's still a huge it's still a huge issue. Like I know one of the one of the stats that one of the contributors gives us is, is that um like if food waste was a country it'd be the third biggest greenhouse gas emitters after China and America. Like so it's still, you know, it's it's a huge issue and it's 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 an immoral one. Like I think that's that's what I feel most keenly about it that it's it's um, you know this this food that has used all of this energy and resource to be produced um, doesn't even make it to, you know to a plate and gets gets wasted somewhere along the line and yes there is you know there is waste um, in all sort of parts of the, the food chain so it's been wasted at farm level it's been wasted in the retail sector and wholesale uh, but the number one cause of waste is actually in the home so us as consumers we have to you know we have to own that fact and and we've got to work harder at at reducing food waste and and like that comes down to all of the you know the usual tips that you hear about your shopping habits and and all of that and and just making sure you know see it as an affront if food goes to waste we should see it as an affront we should see it as a moral issue that there's people starving in the world and at the same time we're we're wasting perfectly good food you know at at the same time so i think it's um
0: How do we shop differently? Do we need to stop the one weekly shop where everything goes in? And, you know, there are perishables in there that do, by the time you get to it, that they're gone. You know, the avocado, the bag of spinach, that by the time you reach for it, you've missed it. Yeah. Do you think that's the kind of change in shopping behaviour that you just go for what you need when you need it?
3: Yeah, I think I think a little bit of planning, like uh, as well, you know, me like meal planning is a really important part of it, and and trying to stick to that. And I know, look, we're all we're all out the door busy, so it's not. It can sound very like very glib advice, but I think it does need a bit of thought at at whenever you can, like, um, to decide what you're going to cook and plan out meals and buy for that, and then like use stuff up. You know, don't don't let things rot in the back of the the fridge. Change what you're going to cook to 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 be based on what you have available you know um i think that's the key thing and then like f- freeze it or process it in some ways like just just make sure you you use veg and and then at the very w- the very worst i suppose make sure you compost it because at least if you compost it whether that's in it going into a brown bin or if you're composting yourself at home at least those those nutrients are being Re- recycled into into the land in some shape or form and that's that's a good plan B. Yeah,
0: I, I feel like Ireland does quite well when it comes to that side of things. I recently visited my sister in America and they don't really recycle at all. You yeah. have to request that bin. It's not something that's given out at a, at a national level or a state level even. Um, yeah. And they don't have a brown bin. And when you see it all going into the one bin you know, it's a it's a it's a recipe for for disaster. But yeah, I think people get so overwhelmed by the message that then what's recycled is sent to China and China don't want it anymore, so it's getting dumped in the yeah. sea. But I think you just need to come back, as you said, to what small changes because can I make? Because yeah. if we all made them, they do add up to make a really big difference.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I I like we did have an episode last week about about the plastic. Um, packaging problem which is a really significant issue and we're we're i think i think we're as you say we're getting better on re- recycling for sure um as a nation and that's a really positive thing i agree with you about the states i was there recently and it, like the the amount of plastic you know just been just been handed out like free bottles of water here there and everywhere and stuff like that um so they seem to be well well behind us but we are one of the biggest users of plastic in the EU, like um, in terms of how much plastic we we bring into the home, um, and that I think needs needs some thought. And again, you know, I'm I'm a devil for this. Like I have loads of bags in the boot of the car for for when I go shopping, and then I end up standing at the till and I've left the bags out in the car and stuff like that. Like I'm a disaster sometimes. But I think I think we do need to do that, and we need to be bringing e- even for. Like even if you bring bags to put the shopping into at the end, at the till, um, I, I, I've I kind of tried to get myself into the mindset of actually I need to bring bags to put carrots into and to put mushrooms into and, you know, like bring 10 bags, which is like small plastic bags that you can reuse or whatever. Um, But so I, I
0: do think there's a feel good factor in that. I mean, yeah. I know it sounds silly, but as, as well as making a difference in the bigger picture, um, it does make a difference to you. I feel better because I think we do often get hit with doom and gloom and yeah. guilt and worry. And I'm looking at the kids thinking, oh, my God, what's their future going to be like? Will there be a tree? Yeah. And then I'm there with my little bag and I'm putting my oranges in them. And I'm thinking, no, you know, I'm making a difference. I'm doing my best. And I think there is just a little positive glow from that.
3: There absolutely is. And, and there should be, you know, it's it's and they are. They are small changes in the scheme of things, but that's all any of us can do, you know. And I think the, some of the 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 best feedback we get from people who grow grow some of their own food, for example, is that they feel really empowered, you know that. And I think partly it's kind of um, that we go through life sort of surrounded by systems we don't really understand. Like I don't know how that this microphone works or the computers work, you know. Uh, I don't know how my heating system works at home or the car or whatever. Whereas and we, we don't really know how the food system works anymore either. Whereas I think when you grow some of your own food, I understand how a squash grows or a cucumber grows or a tomato grows. And that's that's very empowering. You know, it, it feels really good, as you say, a small glow of satisfaction to, to kind of um, have figured something out from end to end for once.
0: Yeah, I think so. How did you feel at the end of filming the series
3: It's a great question like i i think we went on a journey actually as a crew as well um which sounds like a cliche but like that that was the the vibe we we tried to create as a show but also like you can imagine crew crew of people out in the road the diets wouldn't be great sometimes you know And, and i noticed a subtle shift just from some of the contributors we were meeting and so on we were definitely eating more plants like nobody went vegan or anything like that but we were we were definitely more conscious of what we were eating. And um, so it was a sort of a personal journey for us as well. And and look again, it sounds a bit sort of hackneyed, but I, I felt very hopeful as well because there are like incredible people out there, you know, farmers um, and farmers are like, like, you know, going through a really tough time as well at the moment because their work is not being valued. They're being blamed for for everything. Um, Whereas we met farmers who are doing incredible things, you know, um, moving to organics, moving to regenerative agriculture. um, We met, you know, climate activists. We met, um, you know, businesses that are focused around eating more plants. We met uh, like an incredible lady in Dundrum who's got a a zero, zero, um, zero plastic store called The Good Neighbour. And um, where you can go in and you can pick up stuff and weigh it and bring it out without any plastic and stuff like that. So there's, like there's amazing things happening. We just need to do way more of it. And, and unfortunately, I think we also need to do it a lot quicker than we're doing it, you know, because um, climate change is it's it's here. It's happening. And um, there's not enough activity happening, I think, at a national level. And so I think as individuals, we just need to step up and do as much as we can.
0: Well, thank you for being a part of sharing the message. People can find out more by going to giy.ie or foodmatterstv.ie. Michael has also written five books, the latest of which is called The GIY Diaries. And Michael, thank you very much for thanks coming for on. Thanks for having me, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Eva Breen, to Hugo de Silva-Scott, who is on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking on News Talk.